0: This is Danny Fingeroth and you are listening to Superior Spider Talk. Welcome to the Superior Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavazdin, and I'm the editor of GrindMyReels.com.
1: And I'm Mark Chinacchio, the
0: editor of the Chasing Amazing blog. Thanks for joining us for the 26th episode of the Superior Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture.
1: And yes, Dan, for episode 26, we'll be discussing Superior Spider-Man number 23, answering some fan mail and discussing all the spider news that's fit the print, as well as discussing for our classic issue Amazing Spider-Man number 258 with a very special guest. And Dan, you know, we talked about last episode number 25 being our chromium edition, but, you know, with the special guest we got for 26, this really feels like a befitting triple size 90s issue bonanza, don't you think?
0: Yeah, this might be our biggest podcast ever.
1: Ever. Anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's going to be so big that if you want to skip to a specific section or if you're coming back and listening to it again, just use the chapter selection arrows on your player. Also, if you hear this sound, please check out your iOS device for a link to an article, video, or image to enhance your listening experience. And boy, are there going to be a bunch of them today. Also, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. The show is free, so really all we ask from you is that you leave us a nice review.
1: And let's get going with Superior Spider-Man number 23.
0: A lot of things happening.
1: Yeah, you know, definitely a lot going on in this issue. And, and you know, for me, Dan, this kind of uh, evidence, both like the best and worst uh, characteristics of kind of what superior Spider-Man has been about. And, 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 you know, to a larger issue, kind of, you know, what Dan Slott does uh, during his tenure on Spider-Man, especially since uh, the big-time era. Um, which is just that, you know, I feel that... Um, Story is getting serviced more than character in a lot of these instances. you know we, we, I talked a lot about it in the last episode where you know we 're at point A and slot needs to get us to point B um, but sometimes the way he goes about doing that is a little counterintuitive and once we 're at point b it 's a cool, it 's a cool plot twist there 's cool things going on, but you know when you stop and think a little bit about it in more depth you 're like you know what i, I don 't know if I buy that these things would happen with these characters based on what we already know about them but um you know just in terms of all the different subplots that we got in this in this issue we got spidey and venom we got peter and anna maria peter and may may and anna maria peter and flash mary jane Harley's disappearance and, and Captain Watanami's investigation. Flash gets new legs. May gets new, a new knee. We have cardiac, this more goblin stuff. Jameson's turning to Alchemax to do spider slayers. We have a Miguel O'Hara appearance and maybe, uh, per, uh, who's hanging out with Liz Allen, a hint into who's the green goblin, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, You know, it's it's obviously it's good to have a lot jammed into one issue. You know, Dan Dan Slott has said something on Twitter along the lines of, "Well, you know, if you're paying three ninety nine for a comic, you you should get what you pay for." And 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 I agree with that in theory, but like, you know, again, my my biggest concern is is how we how we go about getting all these things. You know, are are we sacrificing um, some elements of good character characterization and storytelling in order to kind of throw plots into high gear, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of the specific ideas here.
0: Yeah, and I don't disagree with you. I, I, I think there, the pacing in this issue is not as well-paced as the previous issues, and, and there's a lot of questionable character dynamics. Um, and I do appreciate getting a lot in, the, in these books. More, th- more than anything, I, that's what I've liked about the Superior Era, is how jam-packed full of ideas... It is, but when compared to um, the previous issues where uh, uh, that you know we had with stunner and all that stuff, mm-hmm. I feel like we got j- just as much and as many new ideas in those issues, but it like it felt organic to a story rather than like checking in on on things and and these these are like my low points, although I still like this stuff better than I think um, some of the like kind of uh I'm going to call them like bottle episodes the the like the the raft scenes. Stuff here seems like it counts. It's just it's, it doesn't seem like it counts in a real way. Like who are these characters that we're looking at here?
1: Well, that's it. I mean, you know, like like you know, you, you look at what's going on and it's like, you know, for example, the 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 scene, the the brunch scene with with um Peter and Aunt May and Anna Maria and Jameson and Flash and and you know, first of all, I I think there's there's probably at least one too many characters at the table with Flash there. Um, you know, like like having having Flash and in that scene, uh having brunch with Peter and Anna Maria, with Peter knowing that Flash is Agent Venom, but him not knowing to return, to me that's a whole other subplot. That could be explored in in an interesting way, and instead it kind of gets shoehorned into this other scene, which is I'm assuming the scene um, Dan Slott was hinting at was going to be the cringeworthy scene of this is- of this issue, which is you know Aunt May basically being really I, I feel um, not tolerant of Anna Maria's condition, her her being a little person as as Anna Maria will call it. And, you know, that that kind of struck me as a really out-of-character moment for Aunt May. I mean, not that she's some kind of um, saint, but, um, you know, it, it, I, the character that we've known for all these years, I don't know if she would have, have handled that situation with so little tact that she would even be bringing up Children you know the, the genetics And children when meeting Peter's Girlfriend for the first time it just you know I mean May is kind of you know She'll describe herself as a fuddy duddy In the past but I, I Just don't think that that I, I just didn't buy it but obviously There's a larger idea in play That we're probably going to get see in another Issue or two where that friction Between all those characters is ne- is Needed and necessary for something else to Happen and and that's where I feel that some of these plot points are a little disingenuous to the characters.
0: Yeah, and it was never built up to the fact that she's, like, worried about Peter having kids. I mean, it's a common, you know, experience to have. I mean, I know my mother has been harping on me about being in my late 20s and not getting closer to have children, but, like, you know, we haven't seen this represented anywhere in a Spider-Man comic before that she has this desire for Peter to pump out normal children, apparently. Um and that that would be an immediate concern to bring up when first meeting someone uh i just didn't really buy that she would be that tactless for a woman who is so normally full of grace and and understanding
1: yeah i mean the fact that the like you know the the panel one of the panels i mean shows like Jameson kind of like smacking his forehead in like disbelief as she's going on and on about this it like it, it just it just felt like a clash of what we know about these characters i i just i don't you know, and we kind of saw it in the in the last issue too, where Jameson, you know, when she sees Anna Maria and says, "Oh, you know, look at the diversity here," and Jameson is like the one being politically correct, and like I don't know, like May May strikes me as someone who's very accepting and very open minded. I mean, you know, when she had the, you know, during the era where you know there she's got the boarding house and you know with the Nathan Lubensky uh, relationship and things like that, I felt that you know those were kind of like the the, the, the good characteristics of May on display. Um, and this kind of seems to fly in the face of that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, for me, that's the low point of this issue. And I don't want to harp on it too much because I think yeah. there are a lot of things to that really like in this issue. Like, I really enjoyed the fight sequence between Flash and Spider-Man. And particularly how um, Flash, like, manages the symbiote in combat. Like, it's like he has to think about it and how he would utilize it. Um, and I thought this was something that was lacking from, like, the Venom series, like, the machinations of, like, Flash's disability and, and how that relates to the, uh, the symbiote. Like, I, and I particularly like the sequence where Flash raids the medical cabinet, like – uh, it's something that I that I think is kind of interesting, uh, like, and it makes me question what exactly is the symbiote. Like, is it how is it ingesting this medicine? Um, I, I, I don't know. It's, I thought it was a fun moment just to see them as a pair again.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think we could safely say that slots and, and Christos Gage, obviously who, who co-scripted this issue, um, their version of Agent Venom is probably. My favorite. I mean, you know, going back all the way to that point one issue where where Venom was, in, you know, Flash's Venom was introduced. And then uh, even like in Spider Island, like I felt like, you know, the, the the ideas that you were talking about when when Venom was fighting the Spider Queen, that kind of comes um, to fruition there as well. I mean, in terms of him, you know, kind of working to control it through his disability and everything. I mean, this is this is some smart, fun stuff um for this character and I you know I totally, I totally agree with you. It's like, you know, I, I like reading about this Flash a lot. If we had this Flash in his own series, uh I'd probably be more interested in that series.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, 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 that's why I bought them in the first place. Yeah, and and, and in addition to the, the the Flash
1: uh and and Peter stuff, I mean
0: we got we got some
1: more fun uh, Anna Maria stuff in this issue, right? Uh,
0: the panel with kissy kissy and 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 and, and Ox face is Possibly one of the funniest moments that I could ever think, you know, about in like a comic book with Spider-Man. Like, it's so weird. I, I love this relationship.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 and it's elevated by the fact that you know by the superior concept. Obviously, the fact that it's it's Doc Ock having this moment. I mean, it kind of kind of harkens back to those moments where you know in the Ramita days you'd see Peter daydreaming about. Gwen and kind of looking all love struck, and then you have this kind of more twisted version of it in, in Superior. I I I really appreciated it. And I think in general, the, the Anna Maria relationship continues to be probably the most well-scripted relationship in the series.
0: Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you there. Um and then um
1: now in addition to that, now now we're getting back into some murkier ground. We have some we have some stuff with Green Goblin and and Hobgoblin, we're thinking in this issue. What's what's going on with the Hobgoblin, Dan?
0: Well, for the past two issues, we've seen that the uh, the spider like minions are very focused on finding the Hobgoblin, and and there's been a couple lines about him taking uh, you know his you know whether he wants to take spider minions off of the hunt to find the Hobgoblin, um in the city, and so there's something particular that he wants about uh you know taking down the Hobgoblin in particular, um. And I, I think it might be because in that issue, several issues ago, we saw the Green Goblin dressed up as the Hobgoblin, and Spidey like monitored it but wasn't able to respond. Do you think that's why he's so fixated on getting to the Hobgoblin? I mean, it could be.
1: I mean, the other thing I was thinking about with this is, I mean, you know, Dan Slott has has a habit of trying to tie up loose ends that we may not even know are still loose, and I, I think it's it's significant the fact that the very first villain. Um, that That slot used in 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 the big time arc was Hobgoblin granted the new hobgoblin, but that was you know at, coming at the expense of who we later learned to be Daniel Kingsley uh not Roderick the original, so maybe there 's just something t- to that that we 're going to find out about because like that wouldn 't shock me the way slot crafts long term stories stories
0: yeah and um getting back to our discussion last episode where I thought I mentioned that i I feel like there 's three forces in New York. Um, You know, Spider-Man doesn't know about the Green Goblin. So I guess for him, the last big guy to take down is Roderick Kingsley in this Hobgoblin costume. Um, And I think that might be part of the Green Goblin's plan is to really just terrorize the town as the Hobgoblin and get Spider-Man to take him down for him.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and speaking of goblins, now, we definitely got some interesting stuff with the Green Goblin here and Carly that might be, I think, really tipping the scales in terms of all our speculation about who this character may be, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. This really seems to point to Norman or Harry, and and I'm still in the Norman camp.
1: Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's, you know, the, the I think the most significant reveal was... Um, you know, obviously Carly in her in her journal and her diary did not reveal that Peter Parker is was Spider-Man. Um, just that the fact that it's Doc Ock in the body of Spider-Man um, and it looks like uh, so Goblin was talking about. But whose 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 face is it beyond the nest? It's like an itch. It's I think I should know this now. I mean, obviously, it was established pre pre Mephisto mind wipe. Norman obviously knew and Harry obviously knew who Spider-Man was and that it was that it was Peter. Um, So, you know, I I, I just don't know anyone else who would have an itch about who Spider-Man might be under the mask. Right.
0: Yeah. I thought that was a really interesting clue. And you know what? I'll give Carly some credit for not being as dumb as I might have thought she would be for not writing that in her book.
1: Yeah. Cue Um, the slide whistle anyway, though. (laughs) 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 Um, But um yeah, it, it, definitely, and and you know, not not for nothing. If if they if if the goblin doesn't know who Spider Man is, and you know, who knows? Maybe Gar- Carly ends up selling him out. Although I don't think she will. Um, you know, it, it kind of takes off the table the idea that I thought that Anna Maria might get get um, offed at some point in this storyline to kind of mirror Gwen Stacy. Um, but I mean, I guess anything is still up for debate. I mean, do you, do uh, cause I mean, you know, to me, I was thinking, you know, that the, the information would be so personal in that journal that, that that's how they would strike, especially when you see that cover that we talked about in the last podcast, where it's the chessboard and the Anna Maria piece seems to be the last one standing.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I think that they're going to find out that Peter's behind the mask because, I think that's what made the Goblin dynamic so interesting over all these years is that personal connection, and you know I have to think that Dan Slott, if he's going to do a six-issue big Goblin story, at some point that 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 uh, status quo has got to be reestablished for it to really mean as much in terms of Goblin stories. So yeah. I, I'm with you. I think they're going to figure it out.
1: Yeah. And now the the other little thing we talked about uh, that that I thought was interesting with that scene was referring to the black sheep going to take care of the black sheep. Now, in my review on chasing Amazing, I, I I went to the assumption that it was Norman going to take care of Harry. But, you know, looking at the mask that he's holding up, the, the coloring is a little vague to me. Um, I, I, I But it does look like a paler mask, which might indicate the Hobgoblin, which also would kind of key into that solicitation for Superior 26, where it looks like it's Green Goblin versus Hobgoblin. But, um... You know, again, I don't. I, I guess for me though, is is you know, why does why does the green, green goblin at this stage give a crap about Roderick Kingsley?
0: Again, that's what I'm thinking. I think he's trying to get Spider-Man to take down Roderick so he can have all the whole city for himself. I mean, even in these issues, you've got you know Crime Master popping up. You know, if you're the Goblin and you're trying to take over all organized crime, that's like the final thing to to, to you know to tip the scale. One other thing that I thought was interesting was that Goblin refers to menace as quote-unquote pet, um, mm. which is I guess kind of – well, I mean I would say it's not a very kind term. But I guess some people use it as like a uh, term of endear- endearment for like a, a loved one I guess or like I, – I don't know. I, I would never – certainly never use that. But um, it, it seems like a term that only Norman or Harry would use for like – you know, Lily Hollister, who they've both, both been associated with. But, like, Harry, I doubt he would do that after what she put him through. So, to me, it seems like a term that Norman would use in reference to, to Lily, um, especially given their relationship. What do you think about that, Mark?
1: I, I totally agree with you. I, I, and I agree about the fact that it's probably – not even probably. It's certainly more Norman than Harry with that with that kind of relationship. I mean if if, if it turned out to be Harry, I'd be a little surprised. Yeah. Um, but um, like as in terms of again, this was a busy issue. So let's talk about some of the other character scenes we got in this. Um, we got some Mary Jane in this issue. Um, at Mary Jane in her new and improved club, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. She has uh, this woman has quite the resume. Let's let's just say that
1: <laughs> supermodel, runway model, and 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 nightclub owner. Um. You know, obviously in this, we have the after her her big debut at the club, we have the her the Captain Wontanabe conversation uh, where I guess uh, Wontanabe is getting uh, pointers from Carly Cooper in terms of being incredibly vague and frustrating with with uh, this investigation, telling her, you know, playing the voicemail that MJ missed and then just being like, okay, well, let's keep this between us, which just, you know, and, and this goes back to these frustrating character moments I was talking about. I mean, I, I still don't understand why, why we're keeping this, this information so close to the vest right now, but uh, you know, you could, you could talk about that if you want to. Uh, otherwise, I mean, what did you think of the MJ want time to be seen?
0: Well, I actually thought it was um, nice to see a conversation in a Spider-Man comic between two women that isn't about a man that they're interested in. It's something that I'm been paying a lot of attention to. There's a thing on the internet called the Beck Dell test, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of like a uh, not official test for movies where you know, if a movie passes the Bechdel test, it means it has uh, two female characters uh, in the movie with speaking roles that uh, are in the same scene together and talk to each other about something that isn't a man that they're interested in. And I've been paying attention to this for um, Spider-Man comics, and, I, and it, this kind of a scene... Hasn't happened in a very long time. Now you could make you know the claim that uh, they're actually talking about Peter, but n- you know neither of them are actually interested in Peter in this. But either way, it's nice to see two women talking in a scene together, um, you know, a- about something. Um, although at the same time, as much as I'm like, yay feminism, we have this Ramos depiction of Mary Jane with her giant boobs hanging out. So. I wouldn't exactly call this like the best moment for women ever ever <laughs> but you know it's nice to at least see these characters interacting um you know in a way that you know allows them to become uh, characters even if it is kind of frustrating yeah um, she-
1: yeah, I was going to say, MJ definitely looked a little sexed up in that scene in her in her, in her her mini-dress, too.
0: Yeah, one thing <laughs> I wanted to ask you is, uh, do you think that MJ is going to act on her knowledge that Pete is Spider-Man? You know, like, she intentionally doesn't let Wat- Watanabe know that. So, like, do we think that, like, this is a setup for MJ to get involved in the investigation? I mean, it could be. But,
1: again, given, like, the, the track record of what we've been seeing from characters in this series, I don't know. I mean, like I I, I feel like, you know, slot and gauge and others who've scripted, I mean like the it's almost like they go out of their way to to set something up where, you know, a character can obviously act on the knowledge they have and then they choose not to. Which Actually, when you think about it, it's kind of an interesting take on the whole power and responsibility, not only as, as it applies to Spider-Man, but to everybody in this universe. I mean, you know, like, you know, characters, characters have information and they can make a difference and they're choosing not to do it.
0: Uh, Mark, the another character I wanted to talk to you about was uh, Jameson. We have a brief scene with him here where he uh, decides that he wants to utilize the Spider-Slayer designs to uh, update his Spider-Patrol Um, What did you think about this sequence? Yeah, I mean,
1: okay. So I was a little critical about this in my write-up on on Chasing Amazing. and, And, you know, it's one of those things, the further I've gotten away from it, I think... I, I still remain cynical about it, but maybe cynical for different reasons. I mean, I was talking about why would Jameson be deploying the Slayers? I mean, considering the history with him and Smythe, and and them being you know originally being Smythe's model, and the fact that you know Alistair Smythe is you know killed killed his wife Marla, and you know I I, I know that that's kind of. It, it, Jameson is still Jameson and he's crazy. I guess for me, <laughs> I think for me my biggest issue was why are we going to, down this well again? I mean like to me it just doesn't show any any character growth with Jameson that like, you know, his his it just seems like his his response to dealing with Spider-Slayer is to Spider-Man is always the Spider-Slayers, the Spider-Slayers, the Spider-Slayers. And even if if he can get Alchemex to come out with a new and improved design that does, you know, working for the force of good, it still feels like a hackneyed um plot line that we've just We've literally visited dozens of times in the history of Spider-Man comics, and I'm just kind of tired of Spider-Slayers. You?
0: I'm not going to argue with you about the uh, the overuse of Spider-Slayers, but I did like the idea that he's re- trying to repurpose Smythe's legacy to be one what he considers a good one, like that like some good can come out of all of this horribleness that uh, that was done. And also, if there's one thing we know about Jameson, is that he's a man of like vengeance. And we said it from the moment that Spider-Man slighted him and is holding him that Jameson will do what it takes to not be someone else's uh, stooge. And uh, if this, you know, he already has his his um, Spider-Squad. I didn't think it was too big of a leap for him to want to like upgrade them um, using Smythe's uh, legacy. Um, but I I do I do see what you're saying. Um, but I guess for me it's like. Spider-Slayers, they're just going to be there. It's Spider-Man. It's a part of his legacy. I don't mind it coming back. Would I like to see something new? Maybe, but this seems like a natural progression of this to me. Um and I like that they're keeping it like within what we are the elements we're already working on rather than bringing in new things.
1: You know, that's I mean it's it's that's a totally fair analysis. It's it's I mean maybe it's just me kind of picking on things a little bit here. Um, one of the other interesting things um, In this scene With Alchemax is And, and we can thank um, the, some, One of the reviewers at the Spider-Man Crawl Space site for kind of Bringing this at least to my attention I don't know if you picked up on this Dan um, there's, there's this person that keeps um, Always being Pointed out by name whenever, with, with Liz Allen and, and uh, Tiberius Stone This uh, Banks, um, and Mason Banks I believe is, the, is his first name
0: Yeah, and I always thought it was odd. I thought it was odd that they used his full name in the first uh, issue that he appeared in when Liz Allen came back. It seemed like an odd thing, but I I hadn't really thought much more about it until I saw this article.
1: Yeah, I mean, and what what the article discusses is if you look at the color of his suit, um, it actually is the same color suit that we see in – I think it was one of the Hobgoblin issues where um, the goblin is getting – into his goblin attire or getting out of maybe it's when he was getting out of the hobgoblin attire he's getting, in,
0: he's getting into it. He's going into his layer.
1: Okay. And it's it's the same exact uh color scheme for the suit, right? And it's like, why are we why are we focusing on 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 naming this tertiary character? And and you know maybe it's even a nod to roderick kingsley and daniel kingsley in terms of you know kind of having this character have an identity outside of you know of um being the green goblin and outside of being norman osborne for obvious reasons but it's it it would it would it seems to indicate that that perhaps this character is norman osborne in disguise right
0: yeah, and uh, you know, with with a fake mustache and and glasses, which is yeah. about as you know, it's lame a disguise as they cu- they come.
1: Right, but the only other thing that I was thinking of is you know, when we last saw Har- Harry Osborn during Danger Zone, it was you know, we all joked that he looked like Walter White, um, but it was a similar kind of disguise in terms of the the beard and the mustache. I mean, you know, are, are, are we calling back to that? Is this is this? Maybe maybe it's this character is not the Green Goblin and maybe it's Harry trying to keep an eye on things, trying to keep an eye on on Normie. I don't know, or Liz, or or maybe Harry is working with the Green Goblin, or maybe Harry is the Green Goblin. Uh, I,
0: I don't know. I don't know about that. I didn't get that Harry was wearing a bearded disguise. I thought he had just grown a beard. Well,
1: I'm just saying we 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 we're, we're dealing with we're dealing with. Someone trying to hide their identity, and we've established that Harry is someone trying to hide his identity, right?
0: Well, I think the worst the the worst place for Norman Osborn as the Green Goblin, or for for Spider Man at least, and maybe the best place for Norman would to be would be positioned amongst his, uh, you know, a, a large company with great access to now Spider Slayer robots. Um, like, that seems to me like a setup of another great reveal that now Norman has an army of Spider-Slayer robots. And and also, like, after the whole events of, you know, him being incarcerated, he can't really come out and be a front man at Osborne Industries anymore. An industry, you know, a company that has been probably just put right through the gutter, you know, um, after he, you know, did all those things with the Avengers that he did um, – uh, after he, you know, was was put in charge of of Shield, um, so he can't really come forward as Norman Osborn. So, what better way to do it than to do it through, uh, you know, Liz, who he can kind of subtly manipulate from behind and run his own company again?
1: Yeah. Well, either way, I think this is a pretty, a pretty fascinating break in the case. Would you say?
0: I think so. So, uh, hats off to them. Um, which brings up new questions about – and I don't know why we haven't been talking about this a bit more. But who is the man in the wife beater that, that was down in his lair as well? We did not see that person's face either, I believe. Could this be Vin Gonzalez again? I don't know. I don't know. But it all seems to be that there's this web of people that we're going to have giant reveals on. So um, I am. Yeah. I am – now really anticipating this because this seems like a great crack in the case yeah and and, and again
1: I, I still think I've been saying this all along that if it's if it's Norman Osborn it should be Norman Osborn it, 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 it would add to the epicness that this story seems to be wanting to sell itself as I, I don't think you can have a story like you know the superior Spider-Man versus you know the Green Goblin and not have it be Norman or Harry and specifically Norman I think this is going to I think this is a good decision if this is where it's going right absolutely um I guess in terms of of character moments and plot things uh the the, the last thing I think we should probably hit upon is um the the final scene of this comic which was um Spidey, you know, well, Peter manipulating Flash into getting this this surgery and then removing the symbiote and then having Superior Spider-Man show up randomly and then Helter Skelter, now we have Superior Venom. What were your thoughts on how this scene was done, Dan?
0: Well, it seemed really rushed to me. Like, I don't know that I find a lot of the actions in it to be particularly out of character. Like, I do think that Flash would elect to get new legs and, you know, I think it's clever how it's all handled, but I think the the page number, you know, amount for this, you know, I, I it's like, hey, Flash, I just so happened to, like, come up with this thing that can cure you. Like, oh, okay, when did he have time to do that? When did he have time to build this containment unit? Like, when did he have time to do any of this stuff? And it's like, well, Flash, I can actually get this thing up this afternoon. He's like, okay, and the next thing you know, he's just strapped to the table, um, you know. You could say all you want about like deconstructed, you know, uh, storytelling and stuff like that, but um, I I was kind of hoping for a little bit more like of a natural flow into this, and like Peter is being very cavalier, or Doctor Octopus is being very cavalier with with his uh, secret identity here.
1: Yeah, I, absolutely, and, and, and like I said, I think I don't think that the 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 cavalierness was taken into account. This is part of where I'm saying you know it's 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 Um, It's not so much that there is um, out of character moments, but I feel like this is another example of story over character in that, you know, rather than letting these moments properly maturate, we just kind of had to have characters in certain places to make things happen. Because obviously the end game is we need to get Spider-Man and the symbiote together. So rather than letting things happen more organically and, and, and you know, having more of a build, I mean, like, I mean, the, this whole thing could have been its own issue, don't you think?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe they're just trying to get it in for time. But, like, that's the thing. Like, I, I agree with you, but I do think that, like, the actual machinations of what occurs make sense. Like, I guess yeah, it makes yeah. sense.
1: It just it just it just needed more time to build. I mean, you know, yeah. it's kind of I mean, it goes back to. The ending of Amazing Spider-Man 700 last year, which is you know, I think the big criticism a lot of people had was, you know, it was this epic flowing, art uh, uh, comic book, and then we get to the end and it's just like, oh, okay, uh, I'm going to honor your legacy, Peter, and it just kind of like felt like a really rushed character beat. Um, not that it was out of character or that it was implausible, but like we, it's 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 this habit of like we we, we need stuff to happen and we need it to happen now because. We can't tell you why, but we, it has to happen in this issue this way. And, that's, and it, it, that's just frustrating sometimes because it's like, you know, again, it goes back to the whole thing. Well, yeah, you want to get what you pay for. But, you know, for me, I, I, I would have been more than willing to pay another three ninety-nine to get a little bit more of, of a development of that plot line.
0: But at the same time, you and I also need to take into account that we are the odd fan. Like,
1: you know, we have demands and expectations, damn it.
0: (laughs) Well, no, not only that, but like, we are going to buy everything, right? Like, so, you know, I guess if I'm a creator, I have to kind of keep that in mind, like, that not all of my fans are like like us, and maybe they do want more, and that superior Venom reveal at the end is definitely going to get them back. We are coming back no matter what. I don't know what it would take to get me to stop buying Spider-Man comics. It would be pretty dramatic. So, like, seeing superior Venom at the end, like, and I'll tell you, we'll get to this in our news bit, having Venom in this comic has really, like, sold a number more issues. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I understand their desire to do this, but I agree it could it could have been handled a bit a bit smoother
1: now, um, kind of related, but also kind of tying into the next point you know we always like to talk about the artwork um, you know I, I generally thought Ramos was great again in this issue. I like the superior venom design a lot, but that scene it was a little hard to read visually right
0: yeah the where, where the the suit breaks free and gets onto spidey it was it was handled in an awkward way that I think definitely could have been. Uh, more more clear and you know when we think about like reveals of new characters and this is definitely like a big reveal of the Superior Venom I always think back to like the reveal of the Hobgoblin um, you know both the first time and in um, you know big time when we first see the new you know uh, Hobgoblin show up at uh, at the Kingpin's place you know those, those Those reveals are are appropriate. They, they start with small details and build up to this epic reveal. And this one was just like half a like the whole action took place on a page like very quickly and and, and confusing to read in, in the way that we sometimes pick on Ramos uh, about
1: Yeah, no, but 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 again, like I mean, the kind of similar what we're talking about with the story, I mean, the end result was something that looked pretty good
0: yeah 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 i mean it's the same as the story when the story feels rushed i feel like ramos is rushed but most of this issue i think is just really gorgeous to look at i mean i i just love this art and this issue from inking to color all around but you know i could just be convincing myself of that uh convincing myself to be open-minded about this because because i'm just trying to be trendy right mark
1: yeah trendy and edgy i hear you man very you're you know just got to not be so delusional about the artwork sometimes, Dan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know what I like, and I like yeah,
1: it. exactly, and I, and I, I like Ramos, and I, 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 and I, you know, judging from the line around his table at New York Comic Con when we were there, um, I think a lot of other people like Ramos, too.
0: Good. Well, Mark, what did you think about this issue in terms of a grade?
1: Well, I'm about to give one of my lower grades of the year. Uh, I'm giving this issue a C, um, and, and, you know, I kind of give it a C with the caveat that I'm still really invested in this series and this story. And I think, you know, there were a lot of good stuff here, but like the scene with May and some of the stuff at the end with 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 um, Agent Venom and Flash. It, it's like, you know, I just I, I, I wanted I wanted the transitions to be crisper. I wanted I wanted more development. I I, I just felt things got too rushed and clunky and sloppy at the end here.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, I was going to give this a B minus, but talking to you, I think I'm going to give it like a C plus. I still like all of the things that are going on in this book. I am loving the plot, but yeah, yes. this one felt a little like rough around the edges to me. And a C is an average, you know, C plus is slightly, you know, a good average issue. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm so excited to see what's going on with the superior venom, especially since I know we're going to get an appearance of a grizzly bear. Um, So uh, I'm anticipating the next one And you know what, if it was a little bumpy to get there That's okay with me But I I want it to really nail it in these next two issues
1: I totally agree with you So, So why don't we go to some spider mail, Dan Sounds good to me So we're going to read through some some letters from our readers here. Now, uh, as, as some of you may know or may not know, you can always contact Dan and I at superiorspidertalk at gmail.com. If you send a, an email to us, we will read it on the air. And if you have questions, we will answer those questions, as we're about to do here with Jacob Blowbaum. Uh Jacob writes, great show, guys. Definitely one of my favorite podcasts out there. I have a couple of questions, if so that's all right. Of course it is. We just said it was, right, Dan? Yes, of Uh, course. (laughs) Number one, who are your guys' favorite Spider-Man villains? And number two, when you guys are done with your amazing collections, are you going to try and get any other full runs? Well, let's start with villains. Um, Dan, I'm assuming he's probably talking more along the lines of um, not who we think are the top villains, but who we personally like, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, You know, for me... I mean, I, I, despite the fact that he is considered a tippy-top guy, I, I have an affinity for Doc Ock. I mean, as many of you might note, um, he was the, the featured villain in the very first Spider-Man comic I ever read, uh, Amazing Spider-Man 296. Um, and, and, and just beyond that, I I, I I love the symmetry between the two characters, and you know that's part of the reason why I really do buy into the superior Spider-Man concepts. I think if I was going to consider one other villain... Maybe not as appreciated as some of the other ones. I really love Mysterio. Um, Mysterio is just one of my all time favorites. Um, I think he gets a little underrated because he's not particularly powerful. Um, but I mean, the, the, the stuff that he does visually to mess with um, Spider Man's mind and head. I mean, I think, I mean, I go back to one of my favorite um, Ramita Stan Lee stories, which was um, Mysterio convincing. Spider-Man that he make him miniature size and like this little funhouse. I mean, it's kind of I guess a I precursor to the arcade character, <laughs> um, but um, I just thought that was just a phenomenal story and 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 like the power that Mysterio had to just you know mess with Spidey like that it has always made him one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, for me, it's tough to choose because I think it really depends on who's writing these characters and also who's drawing them. You know, as a child. You know, reading Mark Bagley's Venom, like that was my favorite villain because it was so cool to look at. Um, And I love the Venom stories. But I think if I were to choose one, it would have to be Green Goblin just because of how personal their relationship is. I don't think he has that kind of. And maybe now with Doc Ock, but I, I, I didn't think he ever had that personal of a relationship with his villains as he does. With the green goblin, and so that will always be for me like any goblin story has me on pins and needles because I know anything can happen between their relationship with each other, um, but if I were to choose like you know personal favorites, like I love reading a well written venom book back when he was really well written um, and in terms of like uh, lesser characters, I love the rhino stories we got from Joe Kelly during the Gauntlet mm. um, I thought were amazing and and really changed the way I thought about that character Mm. Um, and in terms of like B really or C-list villains that I always get a real kick out of reading I I love Mysterio first off Uh, I agree with you on that but uh, The Looter is one I've always loved reading just because of how self aware the comic is about how much of a loser he is and he's
1: and that's your featured villain in your first uh, Stanley comic, right?
0: Yeah, the first Stanley I ever bought was the Looter. So um, because because I have this affinity for the character and think he's such a goofy creation. Um, I, I would say right now, if we're going to go even deeper on the list
1: um, in terms of current characterizations, I, I'm really digging the Lady Beetle character in Superior Foes of Spider-Man, and and the latest reveal there I think makes her even more interesting. Yeah. Uh, but um, but I mean, obviously, you know, we're not talking. She can't be elevated to an all-time great just yet. Let's let's see what, <laughs> let's see what happens in that series next.
0: One of the um, ones I think we're forgetting too. I love the Kingpin. Um, oh,
1: absolutely. And and, and if you if you read Daredevil, Kingpin is even greater. You know.
0: Yeah, uh, Ultimate Kingpin might be one of my favorite villains of of all time, just because of the relationship between he and Spidey. Spidey's always making fun of him in ways that I find really really enjoyable. Probably too enjoyable. Yeah, um, and I but, think because
1: I think because it was Bendis on Ultimate that it, it kind of that Kingpin was a little more of a mix of what we got from uh, Spider-Man Kingpin and, and Daredevil Kingpin, which makes him even richer, my opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean the Ultimate villains are probably my favorite grouping of, of people because there's so much they've had that 2020 hindsight where they can be fleshed out and, right. and more, have a more re- strong relationship with uh, Spider-Man, but that's a whole other discussion for a whole other time. I will say that Spider Man sliding down
1: Kingpin's townhouse uh you know, tower or whatever in in, that, in one of those early ultimate arcs might be one of the greatest and funniest things I've ever seen in a comic book.
0: Yeah, I agree. I always go back to that.
1: Yeah. Um now it's the second part of their question in terms of our collections, you know, I actually get asked this a bunch, so I, I kinda have my canned answer, which is that, well, first of all, because I don't count the annuals. <laughs> that will actually be the first thing I do once the, the I I get the the serial continuity of Amazing Spider-Man finished. Um will be the annual issues and I I already have more than half of them, so it's not like it's a total um endeavor. Um but I I don't I don't think I would go to to doing like full runs of all the B series, but I would probably try and focus on like specific creator runs that I really like. Um like I'd love to get um, like some of the Peter David spectacular stuff and and get um the Claremont Byrne Marvel team up issues because I think those are actually really phenomenal yeah, uh, team I'd like up to comic get books. Some
0: Paul Jenkins.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah definitely. I mean yeah I think we're on the same boat here. I mean are you are, are you gonna like try and do a full run of spectacular or Marvel team up or something?
0: No, and I already think that I own most of the spectacular ones that I really like, especially like with you know the 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 Marvel U stuff where you can kind of get it piecemeal. I don't feel a need to own those particularly. Um, I do already have a full run of Ultimate Spider-Man, which you know if it concludes soon, you know then I'll have the complete run. Um, And I have a complete run of Invincible and The Walking Dead. Um, so you know that's good enough for me. Uh, I don't need to be. Spider-Man is the one thing I feel compelled to own in its entirety.
1: Yeah, I agree. And and, and of course, by Spider-Man you mean Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah, right?
0: that, that's what I mean. That's what I mean.
1: Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Um, so why don't we jump over to some Spider news?
0: Mark, there was a lot of news going on since our last uh, episode and uh, we got solicitations for March. Uh, anything that you thought was interesting in those solicits?
1: Uh, well, how about a lot of things, Dan? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. So uh, the, 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 big thing of course is, um, and for superior 30, you know, the, the, it is being sold as, or marketed as, you know, we've been building to this since dying wish. And this seems to be if if I'm doing my math right, it's the um the penultimate issue of the Goblin Nation arc. Um, so I mean you're you feel free to speculate away, but I, I have a feeling that the the resolution of the death of Peter Parker is going to be um hit upon in this issue, don't you think, Dan?
0: I think so. And that cover is pretty intriguing with that bloodied mask.
1: Yeah, it's pretty pretty awesome and 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 this is you know when i talk about you know when when we kind of bash on i shouldn't say bash um when we kind of pick on dan slot a little bit in terms of plotting i mean but these are the stories that seem to be coming down the pipeline that still have me on the edge of my seat on this series And, and 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 i think um you know dan has proven in the past that he he does epic well um you know like spider island and and no, no one dies. I mean, there's, those those issues had such an epic feel to them. Um,
0: so but, long as it's not ends of the earth.
1: Yeah, that was that was the one big letdown, man. Um, but we'll 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 forget about that. That started out promising too. But anyway, um, I guess the other interesting thing was we have an annual already.
0: Yeah, and that to me that's the biggest sign that this is all coming to an end. They're trying to get one more book in that they can sell before the whole superior thing ends. So we're getting superior Spider Man annual number no. two in March, only like four months after the previous annual. So maybe they're now quarterly books. Who knows? Uh,
1: I don't think so. I yeah. mean, you know, the other issue is, you know, we we had kind of speculated a little bit that it felt like um, the story in the first annual kind of felt—I don't want to say out of continuity, but kind of—it kind of felt like its place was in the earlier um, act of Superior Spider-Man. But because of you know the fact that the series was still new, and they probably felt it was premature to pump out an annual. But I mean, I wonder if you know. amount of time that has passed between Annual 1 and Annual 2 actually reflected what the normal time would be between those two issues being published, right?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I hadn't thought
1: about that. Um, And then a couple other little things in the the larger Spider-Verse. We have uh, a Superior Spider-Man team-up. That it looks like it's going to be almost like a flashback, kind of like an untold tales of Spider-Man, the Kurt Busiak series, uh, where we're going to be recalling um, Doc Ock and Green Goblin getting together in in the, I guess, the early days, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about this is, I think, also speaking about the ending of Superior Spider-Man is... That, like, you know, we're concluding this Sinister Six arc right now in Superior team-up, and then we have a Daredevil Punisher re-team-up again, and I wonder if they feel like time is running out, they can't initiate a new... Um, arc, so they might as well just look back as they finish up that series. So I wonder if that's their way of like not setting something up because they have to bring it to a close. Yeah, I mean, it would also
1: make sense that in terms of um, the way they've been kind of pumping out issues of Team Up too. I mean, it's like it it felt like we were getting one of those a month, and then for the last three or four months, we've been getting two a month, um, which is almost, to me, has almost been a little excessive. I don't know if I need that series twice a month. Um, but, um, you know, they're obviously trying to kind of build up the inventory of issues for the inevitable Marvel Now reboot, Marvel Now part three, or whatever, <laughs> whatever they're going to call it. We'll get, well, I'm sure we'll get a one word teaser, um, that, uh, you know, it'll be like team <laughs> or, um, up Uh, but uh, it it definitely looks like like you said they're just trying to tie up some loose ends and and, and pump out content that's concurrent with um, superior but without getting into a new long-term arc Um, and then just from a sheer um, I guess procedural standpoint it looks like they're bumping up superior foes by a buck which is I mean I'm assuming that's going to come with the digital copy which you know for the sake of my reviews and me sticking in uh, images in my reviews, that does help me, so I don't have to scan images from a comic book like it's like the you know the olden days.
0: <laughs> but, I, I always uh, appreciate the digital copies because then I can take it around with me and reread it. I, I'm more likely to reread the issues, you know, if I have a digital copy. So you know, uh, you know, some people see that as a loss. Uh, to me, that's a total gain.
1: Right. But I mean if they're bumping in a buck and we don't get a digital copy, there's going to be hell to pay, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you think? Is this a sign that this book is uh is selling well? I haven't really looked at the numbers.
1: I have to I have to think so. I mean, it's it seems to be like I kind of felt like in the last the 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 not the most recent issue that came out um in December, but the November issue was kind of like Critically, like the the landmark issue, like I felt like a lot of um, the 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 fact that the plot started going to action in terms of you know boomerang going after the head of Silvermane, which is actually now the portrait of Doctor Doom's faceless face <laughs> or maskless face, um, really kind of brought this series to the front and center. For me, like, the last two issues have blown me away in terms of both the humor and um, just the story, the fact that everything seems to be kind of working in concert with each other right now. Um, So I'm assuming if it's not selling well, maybe it's just picking up steam critically in kind of that Hawkeye-Daredevil way that that those two series have been lately and that they're trying to kind of make that push.
0: Yeah, it's one of my favorite books on the market. So I'm... I will be buying it no matter the price. You know yeah. this this thing, you get a lot of bang for your buck, like you we were discussing earlier. But like it's hysterical. I I, I cannot get over this. Uh, seeing like the last issue where his like dream baby's head was on fire, um, <laughs> that might have been the funniest detail I've I've ever seen. I don't know. Having Doom say "Draw me like one of your French
1: women" was pretty awesome too. <laughs> Doom and his boxers hung over oh um, <laughs> anyway <laughs> um, in 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 non comic but spider man news we got some interesting stuff from the cinema world, right
0: yeah, man, the amazing spider man Two trailer dropped actually that and an international trailer
1: yeah and and I gotta say I, i'm glad you brought the international trailer to my attention, Dan, because you know the the first trailer um my initial thought was while well, it really looked awesome, I was a little concerned um that the tone of the of the movie was gonna kind of i i was not a huge fan of the tone of the first movie of the reboot i felt that even though they they made an effort to be a little funnier i still felt it was like a little too somber of a of a a story for me i mean like you know there's a tragedy to spider-man but i feel that you do need to give levity to these stories as as we'll hear about in our guest segment in a little bit um but the international trailer definitely seems to play up the comedy elements a bit more, right?
0: Yeah, and the, and just the, char- the Peter Parker character stuff. But man, do we have some cool reveals in this. I mean, not only are we getting Rhino, Electro, and Green Goblin, there's even hints at Doc Ock and the Vulture and the Sinister Six. It is going to be a packed uh, movie-going experience. I think that the action looks fantastic, too. Yeah,
1: Electro looks phenomenal. And obviously those little teasers we're getting seem to be tying into the other movie-connected news, which is that we're going to actually get a Sinister Six and a Venom movie. The um, Sinister Six one's going to be written and directed by uh, Drew Goddard. Um, and, uh, he did Cabin
0: in the Woods for those of you who uh, don't know.
1: I'm gonna let you take over on all movie stuff, Dan, because yeah, I didn't know that. Um, and then um, Venom movie. Who's who's doing the Venom movie? Uh, it's
0: uh, written by Kurtzman, Orsi, and Solomon. Kurtzman and Orsi are the guys behind uh, so many movies now. You might recognize them from the new Star Trek reboots. Um, and Kurtzman's actually apparently going to be directing it. Um, what do you think about these ideas?
1: I mean, Sony is clearly trying to milk every last cent out of the Spider-Man franchise, that's for certain. And they also kind of seem to be, I think, fl- throwing it in the face of Marvel a little bit in their studio since you know Marvel Studios is obviously not allowed to use any of the Spider-Man properties. Um, I think I'm more interested by a Sinister Six movie than a Venom movie. Oh, that's funny. I think,
0: I'm the exact opposite.
1: I mean, for me, like I feel like the Sinister Six movie will be a good way to, to introduce the concept in a way that will let it properly develop. I mean, I know it's a movie all about villains, but um, you know, rather than spend two hours on exposition in Spider-Man Three, let's let's do its own movie. You know what I mean? I I kind of I kind of dig that. Um, In terms of Venom, I mean, is Hollywood going to get Venom right? They didn't the first time.
0: Yeah, it's true. But I kind of like the idea. I think Venom's a more complicated character. Like he he can operate with shades of heroism while fighting off this demon. I think that's possible for them to pull off. The Sinister Six one is actually going to be a film that takes place after Spider-Man 3 or it's going to be released after Spider-Man 3. Right. Um, and it's it's said to uh, they do not have a contract with Andrew Garfield who says that it has nothing to do with him. And we'll see if that bears fruit. Um, but if it's got no Spider-Man in it and it's just about these villains, I mean, I would love to see a Superior Foes of Spider-Man movie if that's <laughs> where they're going with this. But I don't know how you do a movie following, like, the Green Goblin and all these guys. Like, what would that be like if you, they're not heroes? They're all, like, very distinctly villains, you know?
1: It could be a flashback where we get more information About Peter's parents
0: Yeah maybe that. Would, I mean, uh, I, I'm interested to see what ideas I'm not going to write any of these off But to me that sounds like the way more difficult one To pull off
1: Well, we shall see. Um, And I guess as our final bit of news, we got some good sales numbers for Spider-Man stuff, right?
0: Yeah, Superior Spider-Man 22 is the top seller of the week. And um, even 700.1, which we like so much, made the top 10. So um, it's nice to see that these books are selling well. It's been a while since Superior has been, you know, it's been doing well. But, you know, seeing it as number one is pretty good. Um, I think that probably the injecting venom into the story seems to have worked pretty well for them
1: yeah and and I would say that uh, in terms of the point one issues we'll, we'll obviously dedicate some time to those in a future podcast, but so far I've been happy with with the point ones that have been getting pumped out, right
0: uh yeah, yeah
1: okay sorry i didn't mean to didn't mean to throw anything unexpected at you Dan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're always doing that, mark I know I know well, let's move into our discussion of a classic issue.
2: Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size. feet just like guys Look out. Here comes Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen.
0: Well, now we're going to get into discussing our classic comic of the week. And this time we're going to be talking about the amazing Spider-Man number 258. And uh, Mark and I are joined today by a special guest. So uh, why don't you say hello and introduce yourself.
2: Hello, uh, my name's Ron Friends, and uh, I am joining you here at the Coffee Bean today to, uh, to talk about an issue that I actually worked on many, many, many years ago.
0: Yeah, for those of you who don't know, uh, we had Ron on the show a number of episodes ago, and Ron was the, uh, I think it's the ninth artist on Amazing Spider-Man, and uh, this is uh, one of your early issues on the book, right uh, there, Ron?
2: Yeah, actually, we, we did 251 and 252 as, uh, as fill-ins, and there was a break with Rick Leonardi for 253 and 254 that he did with Tom DeFalco. I came on as regular artist on 255, so this being 258, this was only about three issues into our run, yes.
0: So, Mark, why are we talking about 258 today in, uh, in accordance with our previous issue?
1: Well, uh, besides the fact that we were able to get the artist himself on to talk about it, <laughs> um, well, no, beyond that, I mean, obviously, you know, we, in, in Superior Spider-Man uh, number 23, uh, the, the issue that we reviewed earlier on this podcast, um, we had um, the Superior Spider-Man become bonded with the symbiote for the first time, creating the Superior Venom. Because everything is superior this in 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 this world now um and i you know i thought that this would be a good issue to touch back on because this is this is basically i kind of feel like this is the true origin of the symbiote this issue this is where we find out you know what the symbiote actually is that it is a symbiote it's not just some really cool alien black costume that peter picked up in a in a in a mini Miniseries uh, <laughs> in the '80s, and, um, and and beyond that, you know, we we, we learned about the whole the fire, the sonic blast. I mean, all these different things. And plus, I, for, for me, I, I actually really lo- really love this issue. I think it's a really cool issue. It's got some of the some of the funnier scenes that I've seen in a Spider-Man comic in it. So you know, why not talk about it, right, Dan?
0: Yeah. So let's start talking about uh, the first thing that we see in the issue, which is that iconic cover. Which uh, Ron, you and I had talked about before. Um, and, and how, uh, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but this, this cover was animated and uh, utilized in the intro uh, sequence to the 90s cartoon.
2: I, I do remember that. I, I know they did the Black Costume Saga, uh, a, a version of it uh, in the Fox cartoon. They also did a, a version of it in the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon that I really enjoyed. Um, But yeah, I have seen both. Um, I believe Pete was in his pajamas in the uh, in the sequence on the Fox cartoon, which would have made for an interesting cover. But uh, but yeah, it has become relatively iconic if you're going to tell some version of uh, of the black costume story. Yeah.
0: How did you come up with this uh, this visualization?
2: Uh, I had a conversation with uh, the legendary Tom DeFalco about this uh, not all that long ago uh, because I, I knew I was going to be uh, doing this interview and um, Most of what was going on at that point between Tom and I was on the plotted page. Uh, We had not yet become the the symbiotic uh, organism called Defelco friends that we would later become necessarily because this was our first experiences working together. So uh, whereas there was back and forth between us from the very beginning, I mean, I I think I I, I would uh, be correct in assuming that the initial idea probably came from Tom DeFalco to uh, to to explore on different cover sketches and everything uh you know some version of the two costumes fighting over peter parker you know that kind of thing so uh, i i was probably far more just the visual interpreter on uh, on some of these concepts as uh, as anything else as you know as opposed to being an instigator uh, to any of these ideas. The idea of the black costume being a symbiote was Tom DeFalco's uh, idea. Um, When the the suit was introduced in Secret Wars, when uh, Roger Stern did the plot that suggested some of the things it could do, those were just things that it could do Uh, Based on what Jim Shooter had pitched as the original idea, that this, you know, it could very easily have been, you know, a thought-activated smart fabric or something like that. But it was Tom who looked at all the different things it was doing, and as writer of Spider-Man, was handed the job of deciding what the devil this thing was, and he was the one who came up with the idea of it being a living organism. And um, I love comics fans. But I just want to throw this in here, and please, no comics fan, please do not in any way be offended, but I do want to point out that the term symbiote and symbiotic is not a comic book thing, that's a real thing from nature, and uh, you can look it up, and it's a real thing, and if you thought it was just a word that Tom DeFoco made up, he can't lay claim to that, but please don't be offended by that, because I've met people who think we just made it up, you know.
1: I think when I was in high school biology, I heard that word for the first – well, I heard that word in a scientific way for the first time. I was like, oh, yeah, like the Spider-Man suit. So, you know, the man tells the truth.
0: (laughs) Um, I'm curious. We talked uh, with the legendary Tom DeFalco a while back, and he mentioned uh, that people were really unhappy about the introduction of the black suit. And there was kind of like an editorial back and forth about getting rid of this thing as soon as it appeared because there was so much – um, anticipated fan backlash, and I think yeah. you talked about that too. Was this idea of turning it into a symbiote and making it evil? And in this ep- issue, we see like it controlling Peter's bodies when he's sleeping. Was right. that um, part of this whole idea of getting rid of the symbiote as quickly yeah. as they could?
2: Yeah, actually, you're at the you're at the crossroads of a lot of that with this issue. This issue was uh, well that's it's, it's six issues from two fifty two, correct? Two fifty two would have come out. Uh, just as the first issue of Secret Wars was coming out. Um, and he gets the suit in, what, issue seven or eight of Secret eight. Wars, I think?
1: Yeah, issue eight.
2: Issue eight. So this is the issue that would have come out the same month. The uh, Yes, initially, this is pre-internet and all that kind of stuff, because that's how old we are. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the, the letters uh, about Spider-Man getting a new costume and everything were incredibly negative. Uh, upon hearing the rumor, okay? So, yes, it is true that Jim Shooter walked into Tom's office and said, when is the new suit introduced in Spider-Man? He said, issue 252. He said, get rid of it in 253. This thing is a dog. We're dying here. Everybody's hating it without even seeing it. And Tom said, yeah? And he goes, well, get rid of it as quickly as possible. And he made the the incredibly logical case, Apparently, he had to make it more than once, but he made the case that we can't get rid of it in Amazing Spider-Man before he gets it in Secret Wars, or the scene in Secret Wars will be completely and totally pointless. (laughs) So it was decided that he would get rid of it the same month or the month after he gets it in Secret Wars. I'm not sure how it all counted out. And Jim Shooter agreed to that. So this was the issue that we were waiting to do to get rid of the suit Now because of the lag time with snail mail Back in the day By the time we got around to doing it The mail was because, was starting to come in It was all incredibly positive About Spider-Man's new black suit And how much everybody loved it So that is why It almost immediately Attacked him again in the And was used as the launch point For Web of Spider-Man If you remember <laughs>
0: right. Yeah
2: because it, it it snuck into his closet and attacked him. I think it was like the first issue of Webb, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it's how it opens.
2: Exactly. So, you know, not only had it had the worm turned to this being an incredibly positive thing, but it had turned so far as to be a story point, launch point for a new Spider-Man book because everybody loved the black costume and loved what... The uh, the idea of it being a symbiote entailed and everything, and then of course you know, other minds, other wonderfully creative minds took that, and uh, on that foundation was Venom built. You know, so
1: I mean, did you I mean, I, not to jump ahead in the issue, but I mean, you know, obviously that that final image of this of the symbiote in in, in two fifty eight. I mean, like, I mean, it's it, that that story is begging to be continued, and it's begging to be continued. In a way that it ultimately came to be, in terms of it in bonding the with it.
2: Of the Fantastic Four. Yeah, <laughs> it, it actually escaped in the FF, didn't it? Didn't John Byrne handle that scene in the FF?
0: I don't did think he... I've read that.
2: Oh wait. I think, I, I... I think, I think yeah, he the sequence where it actually escapes. We recreated it in an issue of Spider-Man, but I believe Byrne did it in an issue of the FF uh, because it was you know Reed was the one that was holding it. Uh, in that uh in that capsule. That would make sense. Well if um, we're
0: talking about this final image of the symbiote trapped in the capsule and we had a capsule in uh superior Spider Man this week. Um it's got those evil looking eyes and in a way this kind of defined the look of like venom in, in a in a weird way. Uh what are your what are your thoughts about uh, uh you know about that that design, I mean, uh and, and the eventual genesis of it?
2: Uh, I I have a I have a bunch of different feelings about it. I wish we had some idea of where this was going. I wish we could have made it look more organic and less liquidy. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, because that's really basically all we were playing with was the idea that it flowed across the floor like a black puddle and and all that kind of stuff. So we, we you know, I certainly didn't have the the concept in my head of it being an organic. Uh, Creature and everything, the, the, some of the stuff that's been done since, which I think, it, you know, it gets better. As people play with the idea, it, it gets more interesting to me. But um, as far as it, be, you know, defining Venom, I, you know, Venom could have gone any number of different ways. I mean, Dave Michelinie and uh, and, and uh, Todd McFarland, you know, what Venom became is very specific to what they decided to do. I mean, Dave Michelini came up with the, the concept and the idea that, uh, you know, that it, it wouldn't activate Pete's, uh, well, had it already been established that it, did, it wouldn't activate Pete's spider sense? It might have been, I guess, yeah, because it attacked him in the, uh, in the closet and all that kind of stuff. But the idea of somebody else taking the suit, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have made it a giant uh, you know a much taller More muscular person And and the thing with the smiling The leering smiling face and everything Is always all very specific to the creative people That did it you know yeah. Cause I can't say I would have gone the same way So that's all part of you know Their contribution and their their very specific Creation of that Venom, you know, because I, I can't say I would have done it in any of the same ways. So, I mean, they deserve all the credit in the world. And and even if you look back at the original stuff, which I did when we did um, when we did the Venom symbiote in Spider-Girl, I went back and looked at all the original Todd McFarlane stuff. You know, the really sharp teeth and the even the tongue and all that kind of stuff all came with evolution. That all came with people playing with the idea over time. I'm not even sure how much of that came from Todd uh, because I know early on he had the leering mouth and the teeth, almost like a Joker type mouth, and very expressive eyes. But I, I'm not even sure when the tongue came in to tell you the God's honest truth, because it took a while. You know, it didn't come Eric around Larson. To me. There you go. So I mean, you know, it. it any idea? grows and evolves, it doesn't come full-blown from the brain of the creative person in its final form, you know. So so I still get asked to do a lot of Venom sketches, and I don't even know why. Because, you know, back when Spider-Man 3 came out, Tom and I did a few interviews uh, because of our attachment to the black costume stuff, and, you know, we handed it off, man. <laughs> I, mean, I only played with the symbiote right up to the point that he gets rid of it the first time, and then... You know, we, we we never touched back on it other than the cloth black costume. We never touched back on it at all. So uh, I don't know why I get asked to do Venom. But then I also don't know why I get asked to draw Thanos and the Infinity Gems either. I think maybe <laughs> Ron Limb or something. <laughs> I get a lot of commission requests and I get a lot of people conventions asking me to do Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet. And I'm like... Wait a minute. Do you think I'm Ron Lim? Because I'm not Ron Lim. I I, I do it anyway, but it's, it just baffles me sometimes because I really I don't see myself as having much of a connection to Venom proper. But I mean, I'll draw black costume Spider-Man until I'm blue in the face, and I'm also very connected to the Hobgoblin stuff. But I understand that because we did a lot of the Hobgoblin material. Right, uh, but uh, it's weird sometimes how you get connected to this stuff. Now I'm never going to get asked to do a Venom again. So,
1: <laughs> so I mean, from the sound of it, you're, you're obviously were surprised by what a phenomena the the symbiote ultimately became.
2: Yeah, well, we were just we were reading the fans. I mean, we I thought the costume was uh, the black costume was terrific looking. I thought it was a cool design, uh, especially after Rick Leonardi got done you know putting the extra break in the legs and everything. And I thought the two issues he did were. Just incredibly nice. I, I thought he handled it incredibly well, and I became, uh, you know, a big fan of the look of the suit after uh, after I saw what Rick Leonardi did with it. So I never minded it. I, I thought it was a cool looking suit. I, I guess maybe I never had a sense that super that Spider Man's costume was going to be gone forever. I mean, you know, if you read comics long enough, you, even then, because a lot of people forget that this was uh, pre cynical sales ploy. If you know what I'm saying, yeah. you know, I and mean, this was something where, you know, Jim Shooter genuinely wanted the Secret Wars to be an event. So he wanted everybody, as many characters as possible with the way they were couching this, where, where you, they were, you know, Spider-Man was disappearing at the end of 251 and coming back at the beginning of 252, having experienced the 12 issues to come of Secret Wars. He wanted as many characters as possible to come back changed. So that it would, you would be dealing with those. The year that Secret Wars was running, you would be dealing with ramifications of Secret Wars in the home titles, and you know. It, the, so the idea there, there had been an idea that I mean, it's become a famous story now that was submitted by a, a fan. Uh, I believe the gentleman's name was Randy Schuler to give him where credit where credit is due, uh, where Spider-Man came up with a black suit, a stealth black suit of some kind, and. Uh, Shooter liked the idea He put Tom DeFalco In charge of dealing With the gentleman To try to hammer it Into a story So they could Pay him for a story And he could write A story for Marvel Comics But unfortunately Nothing ever came of it Uh, I, I think he and Tom Worked together a few times And I I neglected to call him the legendary Tom DeFoco, and I'm so, so sorry. But but, but he's
0: going to have his lawyers on you. (laughs)
2: Lawyer up. (laughs) Trying to hammer it into a story, but nothing unfortunately ever came of it. But Jim Shooter paid him for the idea and so when the secret wars rolled around and they were looking for something you know you remember if you remember uh, the hulk came back with a broken leg and and the fantastic four came back without ben Grimm, and you know all this kind of stuff uh but he wanted when he wanted something visual difference for spider-man he he came up with that black costume idea that he had bought off of this gentleman and uh, that's what they went with and uh Uh, Mike Zeck did the initial design and as I said uh, um, uh, Rick Leonardi played with it a bit and uh, it it was I I thought it was a very very cool design so I mean uh, you know were we surprised that everybody hated it sight unseen? No (laughs) were we we gratified when everybody loved it when they finally calmed down and actually read it? That was terrific you know because the big important thing and I think we did a pretty good job of it Pardon me, is that it's never not Pete experiencing this craziness. I mean, it it was a very science fiction-y direction to take a very street-level character like Spider-Man, when you think about it. because, you know, this this costume could do all kinds of different things. It could change its appearance. It could, you know, it, it completely opened up his whole secret identity thing and and protecting his secret identity thing, and he didn't have to run into an alley and strip off his outer garment anymore. And all. So it was all very science fiction-y that way. But that's, you know, one of the things that was cool about it was to make sure, and this was something Tom DeFuck was always very careful to do, was that it was Peter Parker reacting to it the same way the reader would, like, this is really cool or this is really scary, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, and, and I think overall, uh, all the writers were able to do that on the Spider-Man titles at the time and, and keep it grounded in Pete's reality that that this was bizarre and strange and ultimately, of course, because of what was going on with it and the fact that he was feeling run down and drained and everything that... You know, in issue 258, he finally gets an opportunity to go to Reed Richards and ask him to uh, to examine it. Yeah, Which...
0: there's, there's that moment that you see in many Spider-Man comics where Peter is like thinking about all of the things that are going on in his life. Yeah. And he makes particular mention in this issue about how strange it is that he has this alien costume. So I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: Um, do we want to touch on some some other things beyond just the, the general symbiote design from this issue, Dan?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, this is uh, one of the uh, – I guess this is the end of the reveal that Mary Jane knows that Peter is Spider-Man. Um, yep. What was it like working on this big of a moment? Uh, were there any stories that you can remember about this decision? Uh, I, re- I,
2: remember getting, yeah, I remember getting the phone call from the legendary Tom DeFalco. Um because it was, again, you know, I mean, it was early enough in our run. I I got to be honest, I, I pulled out... Uh, I couldn't find my original copy of the issue, but I pulled out one of the early trade paperbacks of the saga of the alien costume that was published in, like, 88 or something like that, and uh, uh, that's where I read the stories. And, you know, just to uh, be slightly self-aggrandizing for a moment, uh, or or legendary Tom DeFalco aggrandizing for a <laughs> when you consider that you're paying what are, what are the people paying for a comic book now Three ninety nine, dollars $4.99 something like that
0: in that ballpark yeah
2: and they and they uh usually have some complaint minor or otherwise about uh how much story they're getting for their money this book would have been what 60 cents at the time 75 maybe
1: I think it was in the 60 cent range at that point.
2: 60 cents. 60 cents. And it has the humor of, uh, which I'm sure we'll touch on at some point, the Bagman Spider-Man. It has Mary Jane revealing that the 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 tail end of her revealing that she knows that uh, Pete has always been Spider-Man. The black cat shows up in it. The black costume we find out is a symbiote. All for 60 cents in a monthly comic. Um, you definitely got your money's worth, uh, especially with with uh, the legendary Tom DeFalco back in the day. Uh, because yeah, when I looked at this, I was uh, you know it was only like three or four issues into our run, we had already introduced Black Fox and the Puma, and you know I, the ideas were just coming fast and furious. I mean, Tom is 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 very directed when he comes on a title. He did the same thing on Thor, if you remember. That you know you, you're just barraged with new ideas. And and then he plays them all through. And he and he he's not the kind of guy that gets a that gets a good idea and says, Well, that'll last me three years, you know, that kind of thing. He gets it out there and he lets the fans enjoy it as quickly as possible. I mean his run on Fantastic Four with Paul Ryan was very much the same way. So uh I can't say enough good things about working with Tom DeFalco because you're constantly reacting to new ideas. And early on, I mean it was we were pretty new on Spider-Man but yeah I got a phone call one night from him that said you know how do you feel about the fact that Mary Jane knows that Pete is Spider-Man and I said really and I said when did she find out and he goes let's not worry about that <laughs> Said, let's you know I mean basically he was saying let we'll, we'll let the readers contribute and see if they can figure out or you know ultimately of course Jerry Conway decided in that graphic novel that it was the, the night he went out to catch Ben's killer, yeah. But uh, you know, Tom wasn't concerned about when she knew, just the fact that she does know. And I was a, a pretty big Spider-Man fan at the time, so I, I could run my file and you know pretty quickly in my brain and go, okay, I'm not coming up with anything that directly violates that, especially if she has her reasons not to. You know, not to uh, reveal it to Pete and everything. So uh, I said, "Wow, that that's pretty big." I said, "You know, we cleared on this and everything." And uh, you know, he, he after talking to me about it, he talked to the editor about it, and and we decided to pull the trigger on it. And uh, you know, I, I it was one of those things that I, being a Mary Jane fan, I you know, I, at that point we had no real plans. If you look at the end of the issue after that, after Mary Jane tells him his whole, her whole history, we had no plans to, to marry them or that this would necessarily bring them closer in any way other than uh, a very, very solid, strong platonic friendship. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of people ended up liking about it is that they even the people that that are still bemoaning or mourning—let me say mourning—bemoaning sounds like I'm criticizing them. The the people that are still mourning the, the Peter Mary Jane marriage, they see this as an important turning point because this deepened their relationship, which is definitely what Tom and I wanted to do. We wanted to to to, to put a different um, layer. To Mary Jane, a deeper layer to Mary Jane, and explain why she is the way she is, and you know, and Tom and I had long conversations about that, about uh, you know, how do you take a character that to this point has been shown as being a, a, a relatively, uh, uh, vain and and shallow party girl, and you know, how do we make her somebody, you know, I mean, obviously she's attractive, everybody liked her as a character. Uh, we wanted to get her to a point where you could admire her as a character, and it, and it wasn't all that hard to do when you consider that the theme, one of the themes of the Spider-Man book, are the masks that people wear, mm-hmm. and you just start to explore that. You know, um, I, I believe there was a Roger Stern line early, uh, late in his in Roger's Rod Mary uh, Aunt May had made a comment about. Uh, uh, that Mary, that she knows that Mary Jane and Pete have so much in common. They've both lost so much. Well, I mean, it was a situation where uh, you know the the concern was to, again, with no plan other than to make her Pete's confidant and best friend, uh, was to make her an admirable human being given. All of the, the shallow behavior she had had in the past and in kind of picking up on the one line that, that Roger Stern had given us about uh, that, that that she and Pete had a lot in common because they had both lost so much that, uh, that Aunt May had said at one point. So, you know, going with the theme, uh, which is always a theme in Spider-Man, of the masks that people wear, we uh, decided to explore mary jane's past in a way that uh you know at least left you with an understanding of of why she reacted the way she did why she avoided conflict and why she put on that happy face all the time uh as as part of uh, a counterbalance to the things that were really going on in her life and and it you know, I it, it did deepen the relationship between Pete and Mary Jane. I mean, certainly the people that, that uh, loved the marriage and, and uh, read the marriage and, and, and kind of came into comics through the marriage, because the marriage had lasted, God, how long now? 20 years or something before they got rid of it. Uh, you know, they do see this as an important turning point in their relationship, and I completely concur with that. Uh, you know, frankly, Pat... Uh, Pat yeah, that'd be Pat Oliph, and I'm not talking about him. But, uh, frankly, the legendary Tom DeFalco and I never really had any plans. The only plans we had ever kicked around with Pete and Mary Jane was to take them to the uh, to the point of the altar and then have Mary Jane leave Pete in the lurch using some of the stuff that we had learned about her past. Yeah. And uh, it you know, was going to be very tragic and all that kind of thing. So that kind of got out. Got out from under us. I mean, one of the wonderful things that happens uh, when you have more than one team working on a single character, like you do with Spider Man or Superman or Batman or whatever, is that you can even sow seeds that go in directions you don't intend them to go. Uh, when, when Tom DeFalco uh, established Mary Jane as being a runway model, that is a very specific thing for fashion shows. Uh, within the industry Okay He did not intend At the time he threw that line out there And he had her working for uh, For Daniel Kingsley And Roderick Kingsley As a runway model He did not intend for that to, ha- to, to turn into Policemen recognizing Mary Jane As a magazine cover model Those are two completely different things mm-hmm. um, But different writers Take things in different directions And you just kind of Reacting and 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 uh, kind of going with the flow of what other people uh, choose to contribute, and uh, and it ended up with Mary Jane being this hybrid soap opera actress, famous cover model person, you know that that people would actually recognize that she would be on billboards and all this kind of stuff, which you know it, it, the uh, the original plan for that was far more modest, but. Uh, you know, it sometimes it gets away from you. Like I said, when other people are contributing and making valid contributions, it uh, it just ends up happening. It's kind of up to the editor to to ride her on that. But, uh, yeah, it certainly ended—I'm very proud to have been a part of—having been a Mary Jane fan from the very beginning, I'm very proud to have been a part of kind of uh, rounding out her character and giving her a past and giving her a— uh, reasons for the things she does and uh you know however you feel about them and uh helping her to become the character that she became during the course of the marriage so
1: um if i could if i could jump ahead a little bit here um you know the, the 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 dream sequence um scene um where where peter is is dreaming about the symbiote and and the red costume now you know, Ron, when, when we, we had you on previously in Baltimore, you know, you talked about, you, you know, how much you, you love Dick Go's version of yeah. Peter, and right. you get to do that in states here, so so talk a little bit about being able to to do the Dick Go Peter here.
2: That was something that I, uh, was my contribution, that I remember very clearly being my contribution. I cleared it with, with the legendary Tom DeFalco first, but um, I, my, my Feeling is that that is the way Pete always sees himself. That you know, so much of our self-image and everything is is cast very, very early on in our life. We're hardwired with that kind of stuff. And my feeling was that that you know, Peter Parker, even though he is Spider-Man, even though he saved New York more times than you can count, even though that he has accomplished so much in his life to be proud of, he still sees himself as that awkward. Uh, bespectacled youth Um, and that was something I wanted to contribute to the dream sequence Uh, Tom was all for it and if you look very very closely at that issue and again I can't give you the actual page count because I'm looking at it from a trade paperback but editorial I have a feeling it was editorial and not DeFalco himself uh, threw in a word balloon or a thought balloon when Pete is waking up from the nightmare, there is a uh, a stray word balloon that says, and I looked like I did in high school. <laughs> um, did you get he, it, audience? Yeah, he's waking up and he goes, woo, talk about grade A nightmares. I wish I knew what to make of that. And and in, in between those two word balloons is a word balloon added, and I looked like I did in high school. So obviously uh, the editor at the time, I, I believe it would have been Danny Fingeroth, uh, you know, wanted to make sure that new readers and, and again, new readers are a very real th- or were, were a very real thing back then. <laughs> Uh, where every issue was somebody's first issue. I don't know if it's as true now as it was back then. But, uh, you know, he threw that in there for the people to, uh, you know, who who were just coming on board so they would understand exactly why the difference in the look and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, I kid, but I don't really criticize him too much for it. Um, But, yeah, that was something that I wanted to contribute because I saw that as being kind of a, a, a character bit for Pete.
0: Um, speaking about visually dynamic uh, moments, uh, I have always loved your backgrounds in, in all the comics. They're so detailed, and Peter's Parker Peter Parker's apartment say that ten times fast um, is uh, is a great you know uh, setting to draw a lot of details because it's full of giant stuffed animals and so on. Yeah. Um, and the, there's one sequence where he like is uh, being sh- uh, you know almost uh, bashed in a spotlight. As, the, as you pull back on the image, and I'm wondering, like you know uh, like where you draw your inspiration from in terms of like lighting and, and kind of like surreal um, like imagery inside of this kind of realistic world?
2: I mean i I really I've read comics all my life. So I'm sure that's probably something that I have seen somewhere. And, uh, I was a big fan, especially early on. You really don't have the room to do it much anymore, uh, to doing camera pullbacks. They were very, uh, there, there was, I remember a a bit on second city television. If you remember second city television where they were, they were talking about crane shots, you know, we're doing crane pullbacks and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, It it, it was something that I always thought worked really, really well, especially on Spider-Man because you were dealing with a character who is you know, very grounded and very much you and me, but is dealing with this larger world and there was always this larger fate hanging over him and all that kind of stuff. So the, 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 the crane shot, the pullback to a crane shot or a bird's eye view or a God's eye view of him was always something that I thought worked incredibly effectively uh, to, to, to kind of show that. And yeah, I would do scenes where like the background would drop away because you can only pull back so far. Uh, you mentioned Pete's apartment, and I, you know, of course, I didn't create Peter's apartment. That was something that was uh, that was actually worked out by other artists. Uh, Ross Andrew being the, the primary one that when he first got that apartment, and it had been. Uh, done a couple of times in annuals where people had shown a layout of the apartment and everything. And I had that on my desk when I was working on Spider-Man. That was something that made Pete very real to me and very organic. And so I was always one of the guys that um, I can't speak for the other guys, but I was always one of the ones that whenever Pete was in his apartment, I had a great time making sure that what was supposed to be there was there in the background and he was interacting with the props and all that kind of stuff. And I I just thought it was a cool looking apartment. I, you know, that's the kind of apartment I have a very patchwork furniture type of thing going here. Nothing as eclectic as Pete's, but, uh, I, you know, the, Never avoid drawing the, the the cigar store Indian and all that kind of stuff. I mean, <laughs> the, that that stuff was just so wonderful. The the the, uh, the mounted swordfish and the, the 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 big teddy bear. I think he lost the teddy bear fairly early early on. I don't think I drew the teddy bear all that much, but but yeah, all that stuff and and where his bathroom was from the living room and because that's the skylight that he would go in and out of. And you know, I mean, there, I remember reading that Steve Ditko was so into the, the the plotting and the the structure of his stories that he had a layout of uh the college and the high school campus and all this kind of stuff, so that he knew how long it would take Pete to run from point A to point B to change to spider man and all this kind of stuff, and he had it all planned in his head. it was something that he could look at and and keep himself consistent on and you know that kind of detail isn't something that a reader necessarily notices on the surface, but it becomes a part of the fabric of the stories that you're telling. And Pete's apartment was very much that for me. I mean, I, I really always wanted, I, I, you know, I hate the fact that he doesn't have that anymore. They, they tried that when I came back to do, um, revenge of the green goblin with Roger Stern, he had a new apartment that he was sharing with Randy Robertson and they made an attempt to, uh, to do something very much like that. They sent out, you know, floor plans and all that kind of stuff. And and it just wasn't as, it didn't have as much character. You know, it was much more modern and two young guys were living there and all that kind of stuff. But I always like to throw things in the background like that. Like if a character's an actor, I I remember uh, specifically to to The Revenge of the Green Goblin, there was a, a, Randy Robertson at that point was supposed to be an actor. And I had a poster up in his room. I don't know if you could see it past the dialogue balloons and everything, but I had a poster that was uh, 12 Angry Men, the musical, you know, things like that, (laughs) that I would just throw in just for the heck of it. I mean, um, at Pete and Mary Jane's house, in the entryway of their house in Spider Girl, there are uh, framed and mounted. That's their one little place that they let them do that, and there's that they let themselves do that. And there's framed Daily Bugle, uh, front pages that had Pete's photos on it and there are some magazines framed that Mary Jane was on the covers of oh cool and if you if you want if you look I mean occasionally I had the chance to like Greek something in and and showed that it was a headline and all that kind of stuff because you know that that's usually that little entry where there's some bare wall there and they decided that that was their one little place to kind of you know relive their glory days a little bit and all that kind of stuff and on, the, and on the wall going up the stairwell, there were, there were family pictures. It was always, you know, there, there were pictures from ski trips and all that kind of stuff to kind of give the, the you know, suggested past and everything. And those are all things that I've seen in different people's apartments and homes and, and things that you put in your file to, to use to, to try to give your characters some texture and everything, which, again, you know, oftentimes the readers never even catch it. But I think it, it helps to sit in the background and to give it some texture and to give it some reality of its own. You know.
0: Well, there's um, one topic we can't avoid, Mark.
1: Yeah, are, are we talking about the the debut of perhaps my favorite Spider-Man costume of all time?
0: I, I think we are.
1: Um, Ron, you got to talk to us about Bagman. Oh, okay. The amazing, spectacular, sensational Bagman.
2: Yep. Uh, no, that was a lot of fun. Um, obviously, you know, the the point of, of the Bagman was to... Uh, the unknown superhero was to humiliate Pete in, in the most direct way possible because we were dealing with Johnny storm and that would, they had a long history of doing that to each other. So again, it being so early in my working relationship with, with the legendary Tom DeFalco, I'm going to give him full credit for the concept of humiliating Peter (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I think my contribution to it was uh, since John Byrne had just recently given them the black and white outfits that I made it uh, one of the old outfits. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that the bag was Tom DeFalco's idea for two reasons. One was he wasn't as familiar with uh, the pop culture reference as I was of the unknown comic on the old gong show. You guys are too young to remember that, aren't you?
0: I know the gong show.
2: Okay, the unknown comic would come on and just tell a bunch of cheesy jokes, and he had a paper bag over his head and everything. And there's a reference in the story to the unknown superhero, uh, so that's something that was going on in pop culture at the time. The other thing that was going on at the time uh, that, that really is what influenced uh, the legendary Tom DeFalco was that fans, embarrassed fans of sports teams that weren't doing all that well, would wear paper bags on their heads. Uh, at sporting events, right, and that, and, in the, and he says that's where his influence came from for for wearing the paper bag on the head. That the uh, that that if he was aware of the unknown comic, it was probably more through me, and his was more the sports uh, the sports reference. But uh, yeah, I mean, we actually we actually revisited it in a Spider Girl issue where Johnny threw together something for Pete, and, and Pete ended up wearing an old Fantastic Four costume with the stirrup feet, and but he wore one of Ben's old helmets, so it didn't look quite as ridiculous as the paper bag. But, you know, when you're trying to protect your identity, no sacrifice is too great. And the, the kick-me sign was a wonderful touch. And, and the other thing that it was at the time if you read the story, is uh, there was that crossover going on. A memo had been sent to all the guys on the, on the Marvel books that um, that month in Thor, they were opening the cask of ancient winters. And that it was even though it was the middle of the summer, it, there was going to be a snowstorm in New York City, in Marvel New York City. So everybody was informed that that month there would be a snowstorm. And different people handled it different ways. They either made it a part of what was going on in the action of their story or they didn't. Tom being Tom and it being Spider-Man, which I thought was just wonderfully done, is it became part of the punchline to Pete's bad day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know, he finds out that his his new suit is is a living thing trying to bond with him. Mary Jane drops the bomb that she knows he's Spider Man. The Black Cat's mad at him, and boink! It's snowing in the middle of July. You know, I I don't. And I believe Pete's response was something like, "I don't even want to know. I'm just gonna go home." You know, and and he he trudges home in the snow. So uh, I thought that was something that Tom just handled incredibly well. Given, you know, the larger Marvel Universe and what was going on in the larger Marvel Universe, but also that it was, uh, you know, it's Spider-Man. So uh, he's the lovable loser, you know, and uh, I thought it was a wonderful use of that uh, of that larger Marvel Universe.
1: Cool. No, it was great. And and, and Ron, I got to say, you know, you mentioned the, the kick me sign being a nice touch. I think my favorite element of the kick me sign is the fact that it, it takes a whole Couple of pages before what it actually is on his back is revealed. Oh yeah, it's, it's just it's so clever. I mean, was that was that you or, or or Mr. Legendary Tom DeFalco? I
2: think it was a combination thereof. But yeah, the, the kick me sign was supposed to be incredibly secondary to the uh, the whole event of you know him going into action and nobody recognizing him as Spider Man. You know that kind of thing. At one point, there's a shot of him climbing up a building, but. Tom even has the dialogue covering the fact that he just leaped twenty five feet, not that they saw him climbing to further you know separate the fact that they weren 't seeing him do anything that was specifically spider man related you know what really has you know, really entertained the, the heck out of me in the meantime with that whole thing is that. I, are you guys aware, perhaps you are, that there's like a video game where one of the skins you could put on Spider-Man is Bagman?
0: Yes, I have
2: it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that. I just find that hilarious. Uh, over on the Spider-Man message board right now, at Alvaro's message boards, uh, where I check in every once in a while, with because uh, they have a Spider-Girl message board that's still active to some degree. Um, they Somebody put up a shot of Pete as the Bagman saying the real superior Spider-Man over it. That
0: kind
2: of, <laughs> so it's, it's really wonderful. I think people still do react to that as something that, you know, uh, calls to mind this, the, that particular era of, of Spider-Man and the storytelling that they enjoyed or when they were reading the book or, or whatever, you know, and uh, which is always, wonderful. I mean, I think they... Did they do a version of that on that Fox cartoon as well? Didn't they do that at one point?
0: I'm not sure. My, yeah, I mean, I'm a little foggy on that.
2: Yeah, me neither. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And and there should be a larger dollop of comedy in Spider-Man than in other Marvel characters. You know, certainly more in Spider-Man than in... than in Thor, let's say. Right. But uh, one of the things I like about the... Uh, the new reboot... As opposed to the uh, to the Sam Raimi stuff, which I also thought was incredibly well done, is the humor. I mean, they are trying to have Pete be more uh, with the snappy patter as Spider Man and everything in the reboot, which I think is uh, is working very well because that that is something that's very specific to to Spider Man's character. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, did you get the email I sent you, uh, Dan, with the the picture of somebody actually dressed? at a convention as, uh, as Bagman?
0: Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. Uh, do you have any funny stories about bagmen that have approached uh, you?
2: No, I, and I found that on the internet, just, you know, because I will occasionally do searches for cosplay, because I, I just find these, the, these people amazing, the, the professional level of work that they'll put into these costumes, and, you know, quite often you'll hear the people in the movies going, well, that really wouldn't work on screen, and then you see somebody build something right out of the books, and you're going, oh, Really? but i i was so amused to find that somebody actually dressed as uh, as the unknown superhero at a convention that uh, i wanted to send that along it, it was just a lot, you know, it was one of those things that makes you laugh out loud when you see it. I actually met for the first time in uh, Akron, Ohio. I'm, there was somebody dressed as Peter Porker, the spectacular spider ham. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I took a picture on my phone to send it to Tom DeFalco. And I've seen some pictures of him online in the meantime. But, uh, you know, it's it was just wonderful that these people put the time in. And uh, it's incredibly entertaining. And some of the costumes are just Just amazing what they do with this stuff.
0: Yeah, I've seen two bagmen in 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 person myself. So uh, yeah, yeah. See in in Baltimore, I've seen a couple of them.
2: See, it's it was a lot of fun, and and it's incredibly gratifying, you know. Even as a joke, when they when they do the different looks of Spider-Man, and they'll they'll do all those, you know, when he was having the identity crisis, and they'll do all those versions and stuff quite often. The unknown superhero, the Bagman Spider-Man, will show up as, you know, kind of as a gag, as one of his looks. So I guess I could put that in my resume along with Electric Blue Superman and the Eric Thor and uh, and the black costume Spider-Man. I guess I can put the Bagman Spider-Man in there, too. You know? I, I think it's as good as any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well... I don't know how to feel about that. (laughs) I I mean it as praise. That might have been a slam, you know. (laughs) Okay, I'll give it to you as a compliment. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, Ron, we wanted to thank you for uh, coming by our show. Um, Of course, all you listeners can find all of our Superior Spider Talk podcasts at superiorspidertalk.podomatic.com or find us on iTunes by searching for Superior Spider Talk. And if you do, please make sure to leave a rating and a comment to let us know how we're doing, and we'll read it live on the air. If you guys have any opinions about these comics or questions about the ones we've discussed today, of course you can email us at talk at gmail.com and we'll address and read them on the air.
1: And also be sure to check out our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Superior Spider Talk, because it's a great place to keep up with us in between shows, when we put up our articles that we've written and other breaking news about the Spider-Man universe. And boy, there's been a lot of that lately. And we'll even put some teasers about our, the classic issues that we'll be discussing and whether, whether or not we could be so fortuitous to have a guest on to talk about it. Right, Dan?
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely.
1: Um, and um, Ron, why don't, why don't you tell us where we can
2: find more of your stuff? Well, uh, on the web, I really don't have much of a presence other than uh, com, where I do commissions and, uh, and sell what little original art is left, since I'm not uh, currently uh, producing new stuff. But uh, that would be it. Um, and uh, I do uh, kind of uh, lurk. And uh, check out the message boards occasionally. I have actually been reading articles by by the two of you and seeing some of your work and uh, appreciating it greatly. And, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure uh, to – I I kind of – I was fascinated by the fact that you were going to have this discussion. I'll be honest with you. I went back and reread the issue, and for the first time, you guys are a famous first for me. It has been so long since I worked on this job that I called Tom DeFalco and we kind of jogged each other's memory a little bit to come up with some personal remembrances of working on the issue because it's been a while <laughs> and uh, usually I'm the fanboy and I have some, you know, some remembrance of all this kind of stuff and uh, when I told Tom I said Tom it's finally happened I read this issue and it, nothing really registers nothing it didn't ring any bells and he went welcome to my world that's what, I, that's what happens to me all the time. So. <laughs>
0: well,
2: uh, it, but, but we did come up with a few things, and I hope they were slightly insightful. And, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Well, it sounds like it was a legendary conversation, right?
2: Always. <laughs>
0: well, thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it. And hopefully we can have you back sometime soon.
2: Anytime, sir. Anytime.
0: All right, Dan. So uh, now that we know
1: where we can find Ron, where can we find you on the interwebs?
0: Of course, you can find me on uh, Twitter at at DanGavazdan, and you can go to to see all things me. And you can also go to my movie review site, GrindMyReels.com, where I have my review of the new Hobbit movie up. So you can check that out if you'd like. What about you, Mark?
1: Well, as always, you can find me at my my hub, which is www.chasingamazingblog.com, where it feels like the the past month has been a lot of new uh, comic reviews since Marvel has literally pumped out, what, about a dozen Spider-Man comics this month, Dan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, killing you, my friend.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a little crazy, but, but it looks like January and February will be a, a little bit lighter in terms of the, the quantity of titles. Um, but beyond that, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, chasing ASM blog. You can always find me and like my page on Facebook at facebook.com slash chasing amazing. And there is always my Uh, gimmick or good column at comics should be good uh, which is part of comic book resources um, where you can find me every week or so talking about 1990s comics
0: so, Mark, you know, I was, I was walking around town the other day, and I, I saw someone that claimed to have known you, but there was something really off about this person. And, and and I'll just get it out of the way here, you know, before this we go through a really long, convoluted story about me meeting someone, and then you informing me that it was Uncle Ben. I think I may have actually met... Uh, uncle Ben this time, and recognized him i 'm getting used to bumping into him, but there was something off about this this uncle um, uncle ben he wasn't he wasn 't as nice as usual really why well, 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 I mean what did he do? Did he like steal your cab or something well like I, no i mean uh, that would have been that would have been a lot less like less bad than what he did, but I, I was walking through this like alleyway because you know I was trying to cut through you know a part of the city, and I saw this time portal open up. And I, you know, because I'm pretty used to that happening. Right, it, it happens. You know, like you do. And um, there was this like guy that kind of looked like Spider-Man. He had like six arms that looked like tentacles, kind of Doc Ockish. You know, us, me being so familiar with with this universe. Um, and and I overheard him saying that he was Spider-Man from the year 2211.
1: Okay. Well, well, well. So what what happened between him and the guy you think was my Uncle Ben?
0: Well, I mean. I'm saying I think it was Uncle Ben because this next action caught me, like, you know, pretty off guard. When the Spider-Man turned his back to go through the portal, Uncle Ben killed him. What? Yeah, he shot him from behind and decided to stay in this time stream.
1: Okay, okay, before you go any further and you earn um, a slander lawsuit from the real Uncle Ben... I gotta tell you right out—you did not see Uncle Ben. That's well.
0: Then who was it?
1: That was the chameleon, pretending to be Uncle Ben, and because if it was the real Uncle Ben before he murdered anybody, he would have reminded you: "With great podcasts must come superior Spider Talk."